You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This morning, we are going to read from 2 Chronicles 36, verses 1 to 20. Now, the reason why we're reading from 2 Chronicles 36 is because we are seeking to understand more the background of the time of Habakkuk. And as we read through the the lives and what happened during the reigns of Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, we really get a sense of what it was like to be in Judah at that time. And so... We, we read this as a background for the prophecy of, of Habakkuk. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and made him king in Jerusalem in place of his father. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. The king of Egypt dethroned him in Jerusalem and imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. The king of Egypt made Eliakim a brother of Jehoahaz, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Eliakim's brother Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign, the the detestable things he did, and all that was found against him are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring... King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon together with articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. 
But they mocked God's messengers, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord was roused against His people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Now, brothers and sisters, we open the Word of God to Habakkuk, the prophecy of Habakkuk inspired by the Holy Spirit. This morning we'll be looking at Habakkuk 1, verse 1 to 11, and then this afternoon, Habakkuk 1, verse 12 to 2, verse 5. And what we have here this morning is Habakkuk's first complaint, and then the Lord's first answer. And then, Lord willing, this afternoon we'll have Habakkuk's second complaint and also the Lord's second answer. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday we will finish looking at the book of Habakkuk and we'll focus on part of the last chapter to to finish it off. So, in Guelph, that's where I was preparing this sermon series. We did it in five sermons here, we'll do it in three, and hopefully the Lord blesses that. Habakkuk 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar." 
They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we just read, Habakkuk begins his complaint, this first complaint in chapter 1. He begins it with a lot of questions. And these questions are for the Lord. And these questions, they come from His heart. And these questions also stem out of, they, they come out of the situation that he's in at the time. And so we're talking about 2,600 years ago or so. Takes a bit of time for that to come home. 2,600 years. So that's a long time. And yet, many things remain the same today. Heading into 2013, people also have a lot of questions for the Lord. Questions that are voiced because of the situation that we find ourselves in. Questions that we as human beings, questions that come from situations that we as human beings find ourselves in. And of course, these are questions that come from the human heart too. And of course, these questions need to be taken somewhere as well. Questions need answers. And we, we see here in our text how Habakkuk takes his questions to the Lord. And he received answers to his questions. And he received answers for his time. The, the Lord worked in Habakkuk to give these answers to his people. And these answers came in a time when things were dark for Judah. Things were dark for the people of Judah. And we get to learn from this Word yet today. We receive answers. The Word's living. The Word is active. We can learn so much from God's Word in Habakkuk. And one of the greatest things that the Spirit teaches us in Habakkuk is how to humbly and perseveringly live by faith in a world that often seems upside down. So I bring to you the Word of God under this theme and points. God's ways, brothers and sisters, are not Habakkuk's ways. And from Habakkuk's perspective, we see an astonishing situation and we see an astonishing answer. So first, an astonishing situation. With our Bibles open, before we more deeply understand how astonishing Habakkuk's situation was, let's give our attention to the details of verse 1 here. The book starts with this superinscription, this indication of what the book is about. And it identifies there the name of the prophet. It also identifies the nature of the prophecy. So who, who was Habakkuk? We know, we know little about him. So for those of us here who 
enjoy genealogies, there's little satisfaction to be found with Habakkuk. Because we have no idea who his parents were. There's going to be no Jewish bingo here, no tracing of, of lineages. What's more important, brothers and sisters, is he was a prophet. And as a prophet, he stood in the counsel of God. The Spirit used him to bring the Word of God. Used him to bring the Word of God then, and also still today. So that's of first importance. And now, when? When did he bring the Word of the Lord? So as we've seen in, in our readings, he prophesied in Judah after the other tribes were already taken into exile to Assyria. So these were some dark times for Judah. And the time of his prophecy was about the, the early 600s B.C. And this was the time before Babylon very obviously rose to its superpower status that, that it would achieve. And so it was, it was at this time that Habakkuk receives an oracle. And an oracle, what is that? The word oracle has the sense of a burden. It weighs down. And this burden, the, the weight in the prophecy, this, this indicates what is weighing on God's heart. And so therefore, what is weighing on God's heart is also what is weighing on the heart of His prophets. And then their lips need to unburden what is weighing on their heart by letting the people know of the oracle that they have received. Okay, so now now we're looking further at the oracle. And we see there that the first words of the oracle, they're desperate words. In verse 2, he asks the Lord two questions. So two questions, and these two questions stem from a single anguish. Why is God not acting in these dark days of Judah? He's astonished and he is perplexed, perplexed by this situation. So that's the single anguish. Why is God not acting in these dark days? And he also cries out there, how long? So it's evident from these words how long that Habakkuk has been praying for a long time. Of course, he's not the, the first and he's not the last person to do this. God's people are always crying out, how long, O Lord? And so, and like the cry of others before him and after him, Habakkuk's cry is a cry to the Lord. Habakkuk wrestles with who the Lord is and how can He be true to His character in the midst of these dark days? Because Habakkuk knows, and I think many of us also know, that God has revealed Himself in Exodus 34 as a God who doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. As a God who is compassionate. A God who's gracious. So Habakkuk's so very concerned that God's lack of action in Judah is making it seem like God doesn't bring the guilty to justice. That He doesn't have compassion on the oppressed. And so, no wonder for Habakkuk that this is an astonishing and this is a baffling state of affairs. 
And the way Habakkuk cries out, that betrays his astonishment with the ways of God. And the Hebrew here depicts him as frantic. He may have been uttering a successive series of screams. He feels God won't hear. The heavens seem to be empty of God. And Habakkuk is mystified by God's lack of action. He knows who the Lord is, but how can he not be doing something? And in Habakkuk's second question there, we see he continues to cry out. There's so much violence. And the Hebrew word translated violence here could be applied to just general ethical law-breaking. So it's not just physical violence per se. And when was all this violence? When were these dark days, this astonishing situation? Well, as we've seen in our reading, Habakkuk most likely prophesied during the time of Jehoiakim. And that he Jehoiakim, as we read too, he's the son of Josiah. And brothers and sisters, boys and girls, do you remember the days of Josiah? Those were great days. Those were days of, of turnaround. The, the people had repented. Reformation had begun. The book of the law had been discovered. But now, how could Judah have slipped so quickly back into doing evil? The people were perishing because they discarded God's law. And so Habakkuk is crying out, there's so much violence. And then, brothers and sisters, it's not too hard to, to step into today. Here in, here in Canada as well, with Judeo-Christian principles increasingly being discarded as well. And we, we see around us that people are beginning to perish more and more. And we can cry out too, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, when, when we too suffer injustice for doing what's right? And we can humbly and perseveringly wrestle with the fact that our Lord doesn't show His justice in ways that we might expect. Oh Lord, how long will there be so many abortions? How long will there be so much violence? So again, general, ethical, law-breaking. So it's astonishing, and we can cry out, we need justice in our land. And then in verse verse 3, so going back to our text, Habakkuk further describes the astonishing situation and why he cries to the Lord. He continues to question, why do you make me look at injustice? And most likely in his mind, he knows King Josiah had put his whole heart into following the laws of Moses. Justice had been cherished. It had been held up. They'd followed the laws of Moses. But now that Josiah is gone, now that he's dead, the courts in that day were as they are in many countries today. Rather than justice being served, injustice was being served. So it's just this perplexing situation for Habakkuk. How is this the way of the Lord? And Habakkuk's stomach He can't take it. How could the Lord stand by 
And he cries out the question, why do you tolerate wrong? Habakkuk couldn't tolerate what was happening around him. So if Habakkuk can't tolerate it, and he's, he's a human like us, how could the Lord tolerate what was going on? The Lord's own people all around Habakkuk. There's oppression going on. People were being robbed. The foreigners were being abused because they're in the minority. The rights of the orphans. What, what use did many of the people of Judah have for them? The rights of the orphans and the widow being trampled on. Always a sign of deformation when the rights of the minorities are being trampled on. And so what Habakkuk saw is, is a page out of world news on almost every, any given day. So, of course, Habakkuk is just so baffled that the Lord could watch this. And it's also in verse 3 that Habakkuk puts his finger on exactly what he sees in front of him. He describes it with four words. He sees destruction, violence, strife, and contention. And perhaps here now Habakkuk is thinking of his contemporaries, those living at the same time as him, the prophets Jeremiah and Baruch. Because Jehoiakim, remember he's the king, he threatened their very lives at one point. Boys and girls, do you remember the time when Jehoiakim took the scroll from Jeremiah? So think of the scroll that Jeremiah had and the king had it. And then the, the king took it and he just cut it up and he just burned that scroll. And then think of Uriah as well. Jehoiakim's attitude towards Uriah was no better. Uriah fled in fear. He goes to Egypt. And what does Jehoiakim do? Jehoiakim hunts him down. He brings him back. And he kills him. So just as Habakkuk sees it, it's, it's violence and destruction. It's these dreadfully astonishing events. And we think of today, brothers and sisters, and I think for most of us, we don't see any faithful ministers being killed off. We do perhaps hear about it sometimes in more desperate and more impoverished countries. And thinking about this, this isn't overly surprising, is it? The tree here in Canada is quite, quite, quite green. And we're quite well to do compared to most, most countries. And yet at the same time, we do see that God's word is increasingly less tolerated. And think of the Lord Jesus and what he said. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? So brothers and sisters, thinking about that, we realize if Canada reaches a certain level of, of corruption, economic, moral, dryness, then perhaps we'll be able to relate even more to Habakkuk's time. And also, brothers and sisters, another thing to reflect on, on how there is a disconnect to Habakkuk's time and how we might have some difficulty relating is that we don't have the United States of America or or Russia at war with us actively. Whereas Judah during that time, 
very realistically, very concretely, they had to think about how they had these other countries pressing on their borders. Egypt, Assyria, other world powers at that time. And under Jehoiakim, so while Habakkuk is prophesying, they, they paid tribute to Egypt. And so it's, it's under this pressure of Egypt oppressing them. So let's understand this. Egypt is oppressing them. And so that's, who's really feeling that are the, the wealthy and those who are on the top of society in Judah. They're losing their wealth to Egypt. And in turn, they oppress those underneath them. So the top oppresses the bottom. And then we see that on top of the, the violence and destruction, there's also strife and contention. So we were saying there are four things. So we see two more now. So in other words, you have brother against brother in court. And you have lawsuits everywhere. This is a little easier for us to identify with, I think. Our society is no stranger to this. Sometimes the outcome is not entirely just or fair. So we're getting a, we're getting a small taste of what many poorer countries are, are far too familiar with. The world's situation in many ways has not changed since the time of Habakkuk. And so what's the result? What's the outcome of this deluge, this, this, this flood of immorality, of this, this violence? In Judah. Well, we see that the result is that the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. And there's a Hebrew metaphor here. It's, it's, it's the idea that the law is turned cold. It's the idea of the law is, is numb. It's, it's ineffective. It no longer works in Judean society. So no wonder justice never prevails. It's so perplexing and so so astonishing for Habakkuk. And Habakkuk wonders how God can seemingly just stand by as this, this happens. And again, brothers and sisters, remember, this is happening among God's own people. Today's no different. The book the book of Revelation is is clear that in our days. Many of those who claim to be God's people, in fact, act like the world. Present day also confirms this. In our, in our own country, of course, there are those who go to church on Sunday and then during the rest of the week cheat their employees or have abortions, pressure women to have abortions, lie in court, bully others, Turn a blind eye to the homeless, to the orphans. Treat them unjustly. Now, of course, the list goes on. And in other words, if, if it's in the world, then it's also in the church. So then, it's no wonder that many of our righteous brothers and sisters in this world today call out like Habakkuk, How long, O Lord? Though the, the wicked hem in, hem in, the righteous, and and heaven seems silent. The righteous can know, as Habakkuk did, and later the apostle Peter, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. 
and that His ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 1 Peter 3, verse 12. So 1 Peter 3, verse 12, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their cry, and His face is against those who do evil. Habakkuk, and also those during Peter's time, they surely would have wanted to see the Lord's justice right there, right then. But that's not always the Lord's way. So in the case of Habakkuk, he gives another answer. And also, just like Habakkuk's situation, the answer too is astonishing. So let's, let's look at that. That's our second point. An astonishing answer. And the, the answer of the Lord begins with a series of imperatives. The answer to Habakkuk's cry, How long, O Lord, is look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. So look at the nations and watch. So in other words, God's actions are already discernible, already seeable to the human eye. The discerning eye. And brothers and sisters, at the same time as, as we, we look at these imperatives, keep, keep in mind that this command isn't only addressed to Habakkuk, it's addressed to all of the righteous community. So it's in the plural. And so also all who hear this command, they all need to look and they all need to see what is coming. And they need to be utterly amazed. This, this command here has a sense of just being in awe, of just being dumbfounded, of freezing with fear. And, and why should Habakkuk and his listeners follow these commands? The Lord gives the reason. He's going to do something in the days of the people of Judah at that time that they would not believe even if they were told. What does this mean? Surely if Habakkuk and his contemporaries look closely enough at the situation, if they look closely enough at the world affairs at the time, they would believe that God was raising up the Babylonians. Surely they would be able to see that the Babylonians were growing, growing, growing in force, and perhaps at this time already pushing the former superpower, the Assyrians, back more and more. Surely they'd be able to see that. And so if they're able to see that, that leads us back to the question, what makes God's raising up of the Babylonians so unbelievable? And the answer comes in verse 6, and it comes in the following verses too. The answer comes in who the Babylonians are, and the answer comes in what the Babylonians do. What God is doing is so unbelievable because look at who the Babylonians are. How can a just and a loving God raise them up? They're, they are ruthless. The Hebrew word also has a sense of a bitter people, of a grim people. Most likely they are sick and tired of being oppressed by the Assyrians. That is the Babylonians. Sick and tired of being oppressed by the Assyrians. And so they, 
once the oppressed are now the oppressor. And they're ruthless. Astonishing that God would use them of all people. Isn't it, brothers and sisters? How come the meanest bully on the world's playground gets to teach the other countries a lesson? And and then not only are they ruthless, they're impetuous. So just as Assyria before them hastily marched through the earth, so now Babylon as well. Babylon begins in haste with its thirst for power, with its thirst for spoils. To the west of Judah, the Babylonians were the new Assyrians on the world map. Now they were the conquerors. Now they were doing the conquering. It's possible that Habakkuk wrote shortly, just after the Babylonians came through and they took the Assyrian capital, Nineveh. And for the Jews to hear that, thinking of an analogy, thinking of a comparison, perhaps there's something in that. It may have been somewhat like the Canadians hearing that Hitler had captured Paris in the 1940s. And perhaps Canadians were like, wow, that was fast. Amazing how fast the Germans are. But at least they're still far away. At least they're out there. We we don't have to worry yet. But the people of Judah, they should be worrying they, the Babylonians, sweep across the whole earth to, squeeze, to seize dwelling places that are not their own. And like the Assyrians, the Assyrians that came before them, they're a terror. How can God use these people to punish Judah? The Babylonians are even worse than Jehoiakim and his cronies. How do these actions fit the character of a just God? This is not going to put Habakkuk's concerns to rest. This is going to intensify them. He was concerned about the violence of God's people towards one another, and now he finds out that God is going to bring Babylonian violence on them because of their violence. So we see, brothers and sisters, that the punishment, it fits the crime. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, but still, How can a people as ruthless as the Babylonians be in charge of bringing the punishment, of giving the punishment? How does this fit with who God is? And jumping to more recent time, time, sincere Christians in the U.S. and and Canada would have wondered the same type of thing in this century when Nazi or Soviet Union pressures grew into a realistic threat. And our persecuted brothers and sisters in many areas of the world have struggled in 2012 with the same type of question. We also need to, we need to keep praying for our brothers and sisters that they continue to find their answers in God's Word. And we have to be realistic that perhaps one day this struggle will become ours. But returning to our text, returning to the situation 2,600 years ago, we learn that they... The Babylonians are also a feared and they're also a dreaded people. 
They're a law to themselves. So Judah, they didn't obey the law of the Lord, and now they will be at the mercy of the law of the Babylonians. They are going to be at the mercy of a cruel law, of a cruel order. And these Babylonians, they have their own standards. These aren't the same as God's standards. These are these are their own. In fact, it reminds us of how the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they, they rejected Jesus. They rejected His commands. And what do they get instead? They receive more intense rules. Roman order and law and the destruction of Jerusalem. Soon after they rejected and they crucified the Lord Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, he, he'd warned them. He'd warned some of the Jews that this was going to happen in Acts 13, verse 40 and 41. And amazing, he uses the very words of the prophet Habakkuk. He, he, he says, take care that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I'm going to do something in your days that you'd never believe, even if someone told you. But they stubbornly refused to believe. And the blood their fathers spilled, the blood of the prophets, it came on their own heads. So many of the Jews died when Titus laid siege, that's, that's the Roman siege, and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's astonishing when, when you believe it, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Just, just astonishing. Now, let's go to verse 8 and see more reason why the Babylonians were a fearsome and dreaded people. And just, again, why the Lord's answer is so astonishing. How can God work in real time in history like this? Yes, Judah gets what it deserves. That is justice. But in, in this way, the astonishment comes even more when one contemplates some of the fearsome animals that the Lord compares the Babylonians to. So first, they're horses. These horses are swifter than leopards. The, the people of Judah, in other words, should take no comfort that the Babylonians are way over to the west of them. If you've ever, if you've ever seen a leopard on National Geographic, if you've ever seen it hunt an animal, you know that the leopard goes along and once it sets its mind to run, once it makes that beeline for its prey, wow, it is just running. And the Lord says, the Babylonians, they're even faster. So Judah is like the prey of a fierce and fast animal. Judah is in big trouble. And not only that, faster than a leopard, they're... They're fiercer than wolves at dusk. So I think most of us know that wolves are generally hungry. They're notorious for that. And But then imagine if they haven't eaten all day. And then they've waited all day to hunt at dusk. So by this time, they want to eat. And they have this amazing appetite. They're ravenous. So in the same way, Babylon will want to devour little Judah for lunch with ravenous hunger. And then, so we've had the leopard, we have the wolf. That's not it. There's also the speed of their cavalry. Cavalry. 
probably the modern day equivalent is tanks. And during, during World War II, Europe was just horrified, just astonished at just how quickly Germany's tanks moved through and just crushed any opposition in their way. So for example, how just how quickly a country like Poland fell or, or France fell. And so similarly, Babylonian cavalry would make its way over to Judah much faster than Judah would want to believe possible. And just as God said earlier in Deuteronomy 28 verse 49, if His people didn't repent from sin, if His people didn't repent from injustice, just like that of which Habakkuk complains, then He'd bring a nation against them from far away, from the ends of the earth, like, like an eagle swooping down a nation whose language you will not understand, it says in Deuteronomy. So, brothers and sisters, it's, we just so clearly see the truth of God's Word again and again. And then, brothers and sisters, as the Word of God has been true in the past, it will always be true also in the future. The kingdom of heaven is near. And the last battle is coming. And God won't be sending the Babylonians this time around to bring justice. God will be sending the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's let's turn together to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. We're looking at verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. So it won't be the Babylonians, but we see in Revelation 19, I saw a heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe... And on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So brothers and sisters, he's coming and he will rule the the entire earth. Let, Let that sink in. And his coming, we've been thinking about the Babylonians for a while and just how horrible that was for Judah. But His coming is going to be so much greater than the coming of the Babylonians upon Judah. It's going, to be, it's going to be terrible for unbelievers. So, brothers and sisters, make sure you believe. And yet, at the same time, the Babylonian invasion was still terrible for Judah. Jeremiah 52 describes how the Babylonian hordes advanced on Jerusalem in the days of Zedekiah. So the Babylonian hordes came and they camped. They set up camp outside the walls. And Jeremiah describes how they gathered prisoners. So does Habakkuk. 
In Jeremiah, it says that Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile everybody but the very poorest of the poor. And Jeremiah also describes how the Babylonians derided. They, they scoffed at Zedekiah. And they slaughtered his sons before his own eyes. So it's just, just astonishingly terrible, brothers and sisters. And, and before they captured him, they laughed at the fortified city of Judah. And they, they built these siege works around it. They starved them so badly that a desperate King Zedekiah and his, and his army, they try and make a run for it by breaking through the wall. And they're just trying to get through their own wall, just trying to get away. So it's just terrible circumstances. And, and this was God's answer to the injustice of Judah. And it's after this, as Habakkuk says in verse 11, that the Babylonians, and it's described as like the wind, the Babylonians like the wind, after wreaking havoc, after destroying Jerusalem, and and like the unjust people of Judah too, they they commit injustices and they just they just continue to do so. They're offenders. God raised them up to bring justice, but they get carried away, and they idolize their strength. So they they put their strength on this on this pedestal. And they, they worship their own military might. And they get carried away in, in punishing other nations. So they're, they're this brutal war machine like Assyria before them, like Nazi Germany after them. And yet this is God's answer to the injustice in Judah. This is His answer to Habakkuk, brothers and sisters. And so it's absolutely astonishing. What God is going to do in Habakkuk's time is absolutely amazing. The Babylonians are such a harsh punishment for God's own people. And at the same time, God has always been acting in astonishing ways in history. Thinking back on 2012, some of the, some of the disasters of 2012, there's just a small taste of the judgment that's, that's coming soon. So it's in this childlike trust that we see exemplified in the book of Habakkuk that we're to, to wrestle, wrestle with God's justice in events like this. And also scoffers beware. May, may they not deceive themselves that God does exist, that God is acting in real time, that God is acting in real history. And Jesus Christ, He is King now and He is coming back. And He is coming to judge. And so all those who, who claim to be God's people, but they don't repent of their sins, they, they must repent. They must repent or like unrepentant Judah, they'll become dead for the birds to feast on. And again, Revelation 19 speaks to this. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With the, with those signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So again, you, you see that. So brothers and sisters, again this morning, believe in the Word of God. Believe in 2013 in the rider on the horse. Believe in the return of the King. 
He is God's astonishing final answer to the injustices of today. His name's written on his robe, and it's written on his thigh. King of kings, Lord of lords. Brothers and sisters, take a hold of him by faith, because otherwise we perish. And as we will now sing, he is the right man to have on our side. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.